0: This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rollerson. How does a Victorian era structure made out of wood and glass become a world class proving ground for sustainable design and green building practices? Well, it took more than a century, but the Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in Pittsburgh is now the site of some of the greenest buildings on the planet. We
1: found ourselves thinking in systems which is how nature works. In nature, everything is connected, and it's really important to recognize that you can't do things in isolation without having them affect everything else. So when we built this building, we really were interested in how is this building gonna interact with the landscape.
0: A lot of the technology on display at Phipps is cutting edge, but the overarching goal is simple, modeling a philosophy of sustainability that anybody can practice.
1: Sustainability is a journey. You just have to start somewhere. And as you go day after day, you'll learn more and more. Just keep adding on and eventually you'll get to someplace that's really great.
0: We'll talk with Phipps Conservatory's Executive Director, Richard Piacentini, in just a moment. An advisory panel is warning state lawmakers that years of budget cuts have put the Department of Environmental Protection in what it calls an unsustainable position. A letter issued this week by the Citizens Advisory Council says DEP has been doing more with less for the last 14 years, despite rising costs and unfunded mandates, but may be nearing a breaking point. The letter cites a recent warning from the EPA that chronic understaffing puts DEP at risk of losing primacy to enforce drinking water standards, which would mean a loss of federal funding. Members of the Citizens Advisory Council are private citizens appointed by the governor and majority leaders from the state House and Senate. An employee of PAC serves on the council. Analysis by the Pittsburgh Tribune Review finds that a two-year-long slump in natural gas prices hasn't halted an increase in downstream oil and gas jobs in the western half of the state. The paper reports that hiring is still sluggish in the production sector, due in part to a slowdown in the number of new wells being drilled. However, construction of new pipelines, gas-burning power plants, and petrochemical processing facilities appears to be driving new demand for labor. And time for your monthly update on Bald Eagle News from around the state. In Pittsburgh, a pair of eagles who lost their treetop home to high winds earlier this month are getting re-established in a new nest. The storm also took the bird's first egg of the season, but they've apparently already replaced it. At least that's what the Audubon Society of Western Pennsylvania believes. When the original nest was destroyed, they've also lost their live video feed showing what the birds were up to. Observers watching from a distance, though, say the eagle's behavior suggests the mother has laid a second egg in the new nest eagle's nest has been a popular draw for bird watchers both online and at a nearby viewing spot since they first made their home along the banks of the Monongahela River in the city's Hayes neighborhood a few years ago. They are believed to be the first bald eagles to nest in Pittsburgh in more than 150 years. Meanwhile in Montgomery County another pair of bald eagles has taken up residence at a prestigious boarding school. Pottstown Mercury reports faculty at the Hill School in Pottstown discovered the birds nesting on campus last week. In Hanover, PA, there's now a second egg in the nest of an eagle pair. That'll be familiar to viewers of the Pennsylvania Game Commission's high-definition webcam. It is the third year that feed has been available, but last year was a disappointment for those hoping to watch baby eagles being raised. Only one egg hatched last year, and the eagle had died shortly thereafter. This year, they've added a second infrared camera to the feed. And the Game Commission says a bald eagle photographed with its leg caught in an illegal trap earlier this month has been located and freed. Hiker found it stuck in a tree at Fort Indiantown Gap in Lebanon County. It's believed to be the same eagle that had been spotted earlier near Gettysburg, flying with a chain dangling from a metal trap on its leg. After rescuers deployed a bucket truck to reach and release the stranded bird, it flew away, apparently unharmed. When you visit Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in Pittsburgh, the first thing you notice is the glass house. It's an ornate, sprawling 19th century structure that commands a wide swath of hillside facing the Carnegie Mellon University campus. It's a beautiful piece of architecture, but when you look at it, the words modern and energy efficient don't necessarily come to mind. What may not be so obvious on your first visit is that the Phipps campus is actually home to some of the world's greenest buildings and not just because they're full of tropical plants. Tucked away in the valley below the glasshouse, you'll find the Center for Sustainable Landscapes. Opened in 2012, this is the only building in the world to meet the Living Building Challenge, attain LEED Platinum and Well-Building Platinum Certification, and qualify as a four-stars Sustainable Sites Landscape Project. It uses a solar array, wind turbine, and geothermal wells to generate its own power. It treats all of its own wastewater, including stormwater captured on-site using a variety of green infrastructure features. And it's just one in a cluster of ultra-modern, energy-efficient facilities the conservatories built in recent years, just out of view of the original 1893 glasshouse. Well, Phipps Executive Director Richard P. Accentini has his office in the Center for Sustainable Landscapes, and it's where I met him to learn more about Phipps, its history, and its evolution into a laboratory for sustainable design and architecture. Well, Phipps Conservatory was a gift to the city
1: of Pittsburgh from Henry Phipps. Uh, it opened in 1893, and it was run by the city of Pittsburgh for 100 years through their Parks Department. Then in 1993... After a steel collapse in this region, the city realized they could no longer afford to run the conservatory. So they spun it off to the Friends Group, which became a nonprofit organization. And uh, that's when I came to Phipps, and uh, it's been run by the nonprofit ever
0: since. And back in 1893, what was the original vision for Phipps? Well,
1: Henry Phipps uh, uh, was quoted in the newspaper as saying he created the conservatory to be a place of, a source of pleasure and education for the public. And I think back at that time, the skies of Pittsburgh were pretty dark with a lot of the pollution from the steel industry. And this was a place to create a, uh, a nice place indoors uh, with nice fresh air from the plants uh, for people to come to and on, their, on their days off.
0: And then more recently, Phipps has evolved into kind of a research center, kind of a, an educational facility in some ways. Can you talk about that evolution and how Phipps you know, came to be the way it is today?
1: Education was something that was uh, very much in the forefront of our ideas when we went private back in '93, '94, and the, one of the first things we did when we took over was to create and establish an education department. Uh, wasn't too long after that when we inherited or acquired Body in Action, which is a program that funds graduate students doing um, PhD students doing field work in uh, bot- botanical research around the world. Um, but it wasn't until we started working on our master plan and actually started to build buildings that we really started to get involved with real uh, heavy environmental focus. Um, when we started our planning back in the late 1990s, uh, LEED had just come out. And we heard about LEED, and we got very excited about this idea of building a green building uh, that could you know, be more energy efficient, more water efficient. Mm-hmm. And we started with our welcome center, and uh, we got very excited as we we're going through that project of learning as much as we can of why are they asking us to do all these things. It just made a lot of sense. So we started to um, try to make everything we do be as green as we possibly can, even if we didn't get lead points for doing it, we decided we'd do it. So we got our, lead, our visitor center opened in uh, March of 2005. It ended up being the first LEED-certified visitor center in a public garden. We opened the next year, we opened the production greenhouses, which were, even though we were originally told you can't get a greenhouse uh, LEED certified, we actually went back several years later and got a certified Platinum mm-hmm. under uh, on, on the existing buildings program for LEED. And that's actually, Platinum is their highest level of certification. And so far, I think it's still the only greenhouse ever to get LEED certified.
0: What did that involve, that certification?
1: Well, that was really involved in making sure the building is as energy efficient as we possibly can make it. So we have very um, we have an open roof system for cooling, making sure the building stays cool in the summertime. We use radiant floor heat. We have energy blankets. It's all computer controlled. Um, it's a really nice, really nice space. That same year, later in uh, December of 2006, we opened our tropical forest conservatory, which, when it opened, was one of the most energy efficient conservatories in the world. And what's really remarkable about that building is uh, it's a giant south-facing glass conservatory. has no greenhouse effect, and it's 100% passively cooled. Uh, it never gets hotter inside than outside, which is really quite amazing, and it's really an incredible space.
0: Yeah, In the process of pursuing the LEED certification, that was what led you to to learn more about these technologies and what it takes to implement them. Is that how you got to where you are now, where it seems that Phipps is almost kind of a laboratory that other people around the world are looking to to see proof of concept of, of new technologies that maybe aren't out there? Have I got that right? Am I-
1: You're absolutely right. Um, when we finished the Tropical Forest Conservatory, I mean, we did some things in that space that nobody's ever done before. And, and it worked, which was really which was a good thing. <laughs> um, but by the time we finished that building, we found ourselves thinking in systems, mm-hmm. which is how nature works. In nature, everything is connected. And it's really important to recognize that you can't do things in isolation without having them affect everything else. So when we built this building, the Center for Sustainable Landscapes, we really were interested in how is this building going to interact with the landscape. Um, And we use the landscape here to help the building operate. Uh, The landscape is very important in helping us manage our our storm water and our sanitary water. And right before we opened the building, this is November of 2006, I was at the uh, U.S. Green Building Council's Green Build uh, Conference, which happened to be held in Denver of that year. And I met Jesse McClellan, who is the originator of the Living Building Challenge, and he launched the Living Building Challenge at that meeting. And uh, I got to talk with him and I got very excited about this idea because fi- here finally was a green building certification program that was based on systems thinking. Really remarkable. It's also performance based. Um, you, don't, you don't not only have to do it, you have to prove you did it, which is also pretty remarkable. And it's the main thing that people think about when they hear about this system. It's net zero energy. It means your building has to make more energy than it uses on an annual basis. It has to be all renewable energy, no combustion. It has to be net-zero water, which means you capture and treat all your stormwater and all your sanitary, and you treat it on-site. None of it leaves. And then probably the, most hard, the hardest thing that we found in, in going for the certification was something called a materials red list, mm-hmm. which is a list of chemicals um, that you're not allowed to have in any of your building products. That proved to be the hardest thing to achieve because some of these chemicals are ubiquitous in building products, and it's pretty scary when you think about it. Things like uh, flame retardants, uh, phthalates, PVC, chromium, lead—you know, some of the things you would recognize, like neoprene, things like that.
0: All of this sounds rather expensive. How do you close the gap between this sort of cutting-edge research stage and the and the proof of concept and the actual execution at consumer level? Like, what is what's the practical application, either now or down the road, for what's going on at FIPS in terms of? You know, helping businesses and maybe homeowners and other people that have opportunities to improve efficiency and 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 practice more green uh, practices
1: well, I think it has it has to start right from the very beginning when you're thinking about doing a project, and it really foc- it really matters if you what you need to do is focus on your values and really understand what is it that you really want to achieve. And once you set those those benchmarks and those goals and those when you define that, at that point you can really start to look at okay how can I achieve that the problem I see with a lot of people with that are doing building projects is that they they go into a project thinking well we're gonna make it as green as we can and immediately start running into barriers they immediately start running into problems and the easiest simplest solution is constantly to is to just start cutting some of the green stuff out and really start to erode the high standard that maybe they thought they were going for in the very beginning we took a different approach. We said, "Okay, before we started this project, that we wanted to make lead. We want to make a living building challenge building. Period. That's it. That was in the RFP. That was went out to the design team. The design team was hired based on the fact that they understood that that's what they were going to have to achieve. So we didn't pull a calculator out to decide should we do this or should we do that before we did, started the project." We made that decision and then after we did that, then we pulled out the calculator and said, okay, what's the most cost-effective way to achieve the goals that we've just set for ourselves? And I think that's a real key. Understand what your values are, align your your goals with your values, set the line in the sand, and then from that point on, that's when you take the calculator out and you figure out how can I make, what's the most cost-effective way for me to achieve that?
0: So what do you feel like the impact has been? I mean, since you started down this path have you seen more businesses, uh, governments, others, taking a similar approach to sustainability? I
1: definitely see a lot more uh, projects that are going um, really up in the ante for the the greenness of the buildings they're doing right now. Uh, I've seen a lot of buildings that are starting to adopt a living building challenge. I've seen a lot that are really uh, looking for Net Zero Energy certification. Uh, obviously, LEED is still a, the major player in town. A lot of people are pursuing LEED and seeing more and more people are pursuing platinum, which is really good to see as well.
0: What do you see the role of not just FIPS but other botanical gardens and museums and institutions that are similar related in confronting climate change? Where do those two things connect?
1: I think it's very important for institutions like uh, FIPS to, to be at the forefront and explaining to people um, the issue of climate change and showing solutions. Um, you know, we can't we can't wait for government leaders to to solve this problem. I think it's really something that people are going to have to stop waiting and start looking at what they can do themselves to address this issue. And it's really related to lifestyles and really understanding that we need to change the way we do things. I think this building is a really great example of showing people that we can have great spaces but have them be super environmentally friendly at the same time. And that's something that I think the environmental movement got wrong. long time ago when they first got started. When they first got started, they made people think that if you wanted to be stuff, do things that were green or sustainable or environmentally friendly, that you were going to have to give things up. It was going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to wear heavy sweaters in the wintertime. You're going to be hot in the summertime. You're going to be totally uncomfortable. Well, who aspires to be uncomfortable? Nobody. So I think what this building shows is that you can have a great, wonderful, healthy place to work, same kind of principles could be in your home. Uh, you don't have to give up a lot of great things, but you can have a building that can be super environmentally friendly and healthy for you as well.
0: And You mentioned not relying on government, and I think that's especially salient right now with uh, the uncertainty about what the policy at the federal level is going to look like. How do you see the role of environmental nonprofits and other partners uh, evolving as we transition to this new administration?
1: Well, I think nonprofits, first of all, have to demonstrate uh, and you know walk the walk and talk the talk. And if they have to identify the things that they think are important, show people that they can be done, show them that you're doing them, and then show them how they can people can actually do it themselves. Uh, we're starting to do that now uh, with a new program related to getting people to change their electricity. You know, in Pennsylvania, um, we have an opportunity to, to choose the electri- how our electricity, what kind of electricity we get. There's a lot of people that I know that are concerned about climate change, but they're still not using renewable energy at home. You want to make a big difference? Switch your electricity. You want to do something else to make a big difference? Cut back on meat once a week. You know, the production of meat uh, releases a lot of carbon into the atmosphere as well. That's another thing, a very easy thing that you can do. Another thing is next time you're in the market for a car, obviously, the you know, I should say, the you know, walking, riding a bicycle, or taking public transit is obviously the best choice. But if you can't, and you have to uh, ride, ride in a car, purchase a car that gets good gas mileage. Go for something that gets 40 miles to the gallon. Uh, these are all things that people can do. This is a way of getting started, of making a change in your own life. And then when you think about the collective impact of, uh, of all that, it could be huge. We calculated that if every single person who visits Phipps over the course of a year switch to green electricity, and cut back on meat once a week. It would be the equivalent of taking 3 billion miles of car uh, driving off the road in one year. Now imagine if that happened. Imagine if that happened at every other museum here in Pittsburgh and elsewhere in every other city around the country. We'll meet those Paris Climate Agreement uh, challenges uh, ourselves, with or without government.
0: Tell me a little bit about you and how you got into this line of work and what brought you here.
1: Well, I uh, originally started my career as a pharmacist uh, and then got very interested in uh, growing plants and being really interested in museums and botanical gardens and uh, went back to school and made the switch. And uh, I was actually at an arboretum in uh, uh, Michigan when the the search committee from Pittsburgh uh, contacted me after Phipps went private. And uh, I came out here and uh, really fell in love with the conservatory. That's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful conservatory. I think it's the most beautiful one in the country. Of course, now you might say I'm biased, but I thought that before I even got here. And uh, it's, it's just been really great. I luck, uh, luckily, I got the job and got very interested in, you know, helping the organization move forward. And I already explained how, you know, we didn't set out to build the greenest building in the world or to do all these super uh, um, important environmental initiatives that kind of evolved over time. And I think that's another thing that I've learned and a thing like that I like to share with people, and that is the idea that sustainability is a journey. You just have to start somewhere. And as you go day after day, you'll learn more and more. And as you just keep you just keep adding on, and eventually you'll get to someplace that's really great.
0: And where is FIPS going in 2017? What's on the agenda for the next year?
1: Well, one of the things that we're very interested in that we've learned, you know, we did go for a well-building certification on this building uh, as well. And that's a new standard that looks at how do buildings affect human health. And uh, this building is the only platinum well-building certified building in the world right now, and which is their highest level. And we are very interested in ex- continuing to explore how the built environment affects human health and really looking at how human health and environmental health are so inextricably connected. And so we've actually started a research program that's looking at that And we're also very interested in this concept of biophilia, which is a term which describes the innate desire that's in all of us to want to be connected with other living things. And it's in our DNA. It's something that's really important. And we know the more we have connections to nature, the healthier, the happier, and the more productive we are. So we're really interested in biophilic design. How do we incorporate biophilia into the built environment? How do we demonstrate to people how important it is to make connections to nature? And what better place to connect to nature than a botanical garden? So we think we're a perfect place to really explore this and to really demonstrate it and then to uh, help people understand that this is something that they really should be looking at too. Another uh, certification program that we went for on this building is called the Sustainable Sites Initiative, and that's like lead for landscapes it's a It's a new program that really looks at how the environment how to make healthy, sustainable environments. And when you do a development project. And uh, that we think is very important and it's something that plays in nicely with everything else that we've done with this building.
0: I'm curious too about the, uh, the original building. Has it gotten any kind of certification? I realize that's a whole other proposition to retrofit something that old. But
1: Well, the, the old 1893 conservatory certainly presents us with a, a problem. Um, first of all, it's a beautiful building. It's a historic building. It's very important that we, that we maintain that building this, um, and celebrate that building. Uh, but it is probably one of the best examples of the worst kind of buildings you could possibly build. It's a single pane glass building designed to grow tropical plants in a temperate climate, which, which by today's standards uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. But you know, when you think back a little over 120 years ago, uh, that made a lot of sense to people back at that time. Nevertheless, it's an important structure for, it's an important building in Pittsburgh. Uh, It's something that, you know, we are entrusted to take care of. So we're looking at how can we make that building be more efficient. There's a lot of restrictions, a lot of historical considerations that we're not allowed to to change anything on the outside, and the structure cannot handle the weight of double-pane glass. But we've just completed a major engineering study of the building where it looks like with some modifications we want to make over the next couple of years, we'll probably be able to reduce the the heat uh, uh, required to maintain that building by 50%, which would be pretty significant. Uh, right now, all the electricity we use on our entire campus is from renewable energy. We purchase enough renewable energy credits to offset all our electricity, and we also offset all the carbon we use for heating all our buildings here at Phipps. But still, we think it's really important to reduce the amount of uh, energy that's used in that building so we'll be implementing those strategies over the next couple of years.
0: Could you tell me a little bit more about how you work with the academic community in Pittsburgh and other cities?
1: We have a a great relationship with some of our universities here in Pittsburgh. When we first started the design of the uh, Center for Sustainable Landscapes, one of the first things we did was go to the University of Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon University and told them that we were planning on building one of the greenest buildings in the world. Would they like to be involved in this project? And they jumped at it. And they sent teams of uh, people here that um, participated in all our design charrettes and um, really helped us with a peer review of the project. We had such a great working relationship with them that when we finished the building, we said, you know, a lot of times people build green buildings, but nobody knows if they really work. How would you like to study this building? How would you like to use it as a lab? Uh, So we have sensors all throughout the building, and now every day thousands of data points in real time are being sent over to both universities that they're able to use in research. And so far uh, both Carnegie Mellon University and Pittsburgh have produced a number of uh, original research papers based in part on some of the research they've done at the conservatory. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been great for them, it's been great for the field to try and understand how can we make greener buildings, but it's also been good for us because we've been able to fine-tune our operation of the building based on the feedback we've gotten them. So, for example, when we first opened this building, we had a 5,000 kW surplus of energy that we produced in our first year. That's equivalent to about one typical half of what a typical family in America uses each year. Uh, The next year we increased it to 11,000. Last year it was 18,000 kilowatt-hour surplus, which is like one and a half times what a typical family uses. So we're getting better. The more we use this building, a lot of it has to do with the relationships that we've developed with the universities.
0: Richard, thanks for your time today.
1: It's really great. Thanks for uh, coming out here and letting us be a part of your program.
0: Richard Piacentini is executive director of Phipps Conservatory and Botanical Gardens in Pittsburgh. Their website is at phipps.conservatory.org. That's P-H-I-P-P-S. Dot conservatory.org. And that's Pennsylvania Legacies for this week. Our home on the web is at pecpa.org, where you'll find past episodes of the show and lots more about Peck's work. You can subscribe in iTunes or SoundCloud as well. If you do, please take a moment to rate and review the show. And if you have any questions, tips, suggestions, or other feedback, please get in touch. You can email those to legacies at pecpa.org. Again, legacies, L-E-G-A-C-I-E-S, at pecpa.org. I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening.